Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 28th, 2021. Um, we've got three more days left of 2021. Three long days in this perhaps rather long year. A lot of people have viewed this year in extremely dark terms. And I'm wondering whether if there is a word to summarize this year that somehow captures its zeitgeist, the way we think, how we're suffering, how we are coping or perhaps not coping. The word is trauma or trauma, depending on how you pronounce it. The Washington Post um, has a piece in its health section today uh, entitled, The Pandemic Has Caused Nearly Two Years of Collective Trauma. Many people are near a breaking point. I'm not sure whether collective trauma and being near a breaking point are intimately bound up with one another. Um, and the piece talks about airline passenger rage, New York City tourists assaulting a restaurant host, uh, 11 people charged with misdemeanors after they apparently chanted no more masks. Uh, anger, trauma seems to be ubiquitous. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, the Guardian leads with a piece today about how female veterans, I guess from Iraq or Afghanistan, um, who are suffering the trauma of war um, or of violence, have been let down by the U.S. healthcare system. It's not just war, though. Uh, everywhere, ubiquitous. It seems as if trauma is affecting people. There's uh, a piece in the Post this morning about how one TikTok content moderator is suing the company, uh, alleging trauma from hours reviewing videos of rape and killing. So this trauma is every day. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Um, there's even a piece about how... Uh, Darth Vader's childhood trauma explains his weird obsession. I'm not sure which weird obsession, but certainly it's become the way in which we make sense, not just of the world, but of narratives and of art and of character. There's even a piece in The New Yorker today about uh, the case against the trauma plot, suggesting that we have become too obsessed with trauma. Um, I'm quoting uh, from the New Yorker piece, trauma has become synonymous with backstory. The present must give way to the past where all mysteries can be solved. In other words, everyone suffers trauma and the key to understanding anyone and everything is through this trauma, this uncovering of suffering. Um, the idea of trauma is very powerful in books. Uh, one book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind and Body and the Healing of Trauma by uh, Bessel van der Kirk. Some of you may have read it. Um, it's been a New York Times bestseller for, I think, over 100 weeks. It has almost 40,000 ratings on Amazon. It's astonishing. Uh, and those, are, those ratings are five star. And we're talking about trauma today. Uh, the, uh, there's, a, there's a book called The Trauma of Everyday Life, which came out in 2014 by Mark Epstein, uh, but since trauma has become ubiquitous, we have a new book by my guest today, Tracy Shaw's Everyday Trauma, Remapping the Brain's Response to Stress, Anxiety, and Painful Memories 
for a Better Life. Uh, Dr. Tracy Shores um, is a distinguished professor of neuroscience at Rutgers University. I'm thrilled that she is joining us from New Jersey today. Uh, Tracy, apologies for the rather long-winded, perhaps even traumatic uh, introduction to this show. Um, Is 2021 the year in which trauma has become ubiquitous everywhere? Can we separate ourselves from trauma? Um, I mean, trauma's been around really since life began, and particularly human life. Um, So I'm not necessarily sure that it's any more prevalent now than than ever. I do think that people are, particularly because of the pandemic, but even before that, using the word uh, more liberally. Um, you know, for a long period of time, people often use the word trauma to describe a discrete event, like a traumatic experience, something that you could describe in kind of a everyday terms or like a car accident or an earthquake, a violent attack, you know, some kind of discrete experience. And over the last 10 years or so, that word, the word trauma has, has expanded to include all kinds of things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have considered trauma before, which might have been more uh, associated with with stress, extreme stress. Um, Experiences such as chronic illness, harassment. Um, So yeah, and also I think there's a greater appreciation for how trauma can impact other aspects of human behavior such as addiction, um, homelessness, et cetera, you know, disease. So I just think that people have embraced the term um, lately, and particularly, obviously, during during the pandemic. Well, you are an expert, uh, Tracy. You're a professor, not of trauma, but of neuroscience. You've spent a lifetime studying this stuff. So... Should we define it scientifically? Do we have to narrow it? Because it seems as if everybody these days is experiencing trauma. If you attack someone on an aircraft, uh, it's a consequence of trauma. The, the, the New Yorker piece against the trauma plot seems to be very relevant in the sense that everyone's outrageous behavior can be explained, it seems, by one kind of trauma or another. Where do we draw the line? Yeah. I mean, trauma... It's not really the trauma per se or the the event. It's really the response to the experience that causes the trauma. And so one of the reasons I wrote my book, in fact, was just so that people could get a better idea of the ways in which our bodies and our brains respond to traumatic experience. In fact, I, I start the book in the prologue discussing a a car accident that a man and a woman were in. They were husband and wife. They were both exposed to the very same experience, more or less. They were trapped in a car with a bunch of other cars and had to watch, you know, some horrific scenes unfold and were afraid for their own lives. And yet they responded very differently to that same, relatively same experience. And 
so what I hope to do is show that everyone has a slightly different response to life's experiences, depending on what you're born with, how you're raised, what other experiences you've already had in your life, your gender, your sex, your age, um, whether or not you're a mother or a father. There's all these uh, differences amongst us that kind of um, determine how we will respond to a particular event. Now, all that being said, we're all so much more similar than we are different. So all of us, including most mammals, have a stress response so that when we are afraid, our body kicks in. You know, when we're when something bad happens, our heart beats faster, our adrenal glands release hormones, which make us have lots of energy so we can escape or fight or freeze. Um, but then we also have these other responses that are a little bit slower. They, they take longer to kick in stress hormones, for example, that are released from the adrenals as well, go to our brain and make these kind of long-term changes, which allow us to remember what happened, think about what happened, recover from what happened. So, I thought it would be good it, instead of just thinking of trauma as a general term that applies to everything to really think about it as it applies to yourself, you know, in your own body. Uh, you suggest in the book that women uh, might experience trauma differently. Is that fair to men, of course? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, different. it's hard to say because there is also lots of variability. But in general, women are much more likely to be diagnosed with trauma-related or stress-related disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. About three, two or three times as many women are diagnosed with this as men. They're also much more likely to be diagnosed with depression, I'm curious on the post-traumatic stress front, um, Tracy. Uh, we had the uh, we talked earlier about female veterans um, suffering trauma who have been let down by the U.S. healthcare system. We've had a number of shows about the experience of the Iraq and Afghan war. Uh, had um, Ruben Gallego, actually a U.S. congressman, on the show, talking about the post-traumatic stress of, of many of the people he fought with. Um, is the response to those wars very different between the male and the female combatants, in your experience? Um, I mean, I don't study that particular population. I, I mean, I'm aware of the statistics. You know, it's a very, that's a little bit of a, a more difficult uh, population to compare because some of the experiences that women have in combat are different than men have. Um, so... It's not like the car accident example where I gave you before, where these man, a man and a woman were exposed to the same event. Because typically, in at least most cases, from what I know and more, women have slightly different roles. They often don't have combat roles. Maybe they have support roles. There's the issue of sexual harassment and violence, which is obviously more prevalent 
happens to more women than it does to men. Um, there's the issue of, of motherhood. Um, I mean, there was, I remember years ago, there was an article called the triple whammy about women in combat. And it was the fact that they were in war, that they had these, these experiences with sexual harassment and violence, violence, and then also um, many of them being, you know, separated from their, from their children. You're a professor, Tracy, of neuroscience rather than psychology. I mean, so how do these two areas cross over when it comes to trauma? What's your interest as a neuroscientist in trauma or what has been your interest? I mean, I am in psychology too. I'm also a psychologist, but I don't practice, you know, clinical psychology per se. I don't provide therapy or anything like that. Most of my interest has been in the cellular basis of stress and trauma. So, you know, at a, at a cellular level, under the, under the microscope, so to speak, you know, how does the brain respond to stress and trauma? Now, that those changes, of course, presumably, because it's our brain, have consequences for how we think, what we think about, how often we think about, and also the memories that we form. So, for example, one of the, the processes that I'm particularly interested in now are ruminations. And ruminations are memor are with a kind of a form of memory because you repeat them over and over again. So they're they're a kind of a habit, but they're also um, very troublesome, <clears throat> I guess you could say, for most people. They're more prevalent in women than men. They're also more prevalent in people who are depressed. They're more prevalent in people who've had a lot of trauma. And they're negative generally. So most people, when they're ruminating, aren't ruminating about positive things. They tend rumination. To What's the difference between rumination and thinking? Um, well, thinking is, is a broad category. Very broad, of course. Right? Yeah, and, I, and I'm asking, I mean, you, 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 you write about, and, and uh, I'm quoting your website, ruminations are repetitive thoughts about oneself. They're usually negative and often about the past. I mean, yeah. isn't that just a thought? I mean, often people think like that. We all have, we all have ruminations, Tracy, about our lives, regrets, things that we're unhappy about that we wished if if we were living that experience again, we wouldn't do the same thing. Is that a rumination? Yes, that's a rumination. And does that mean everyone has trauma? No, but everybody ruminates. So rumination is a type of thought. There's many types of thoughts, of course. And so ruminations are just one type of thought. You could ruminate, obviously, on something positive. Um, but most people tend to ruminate on negative things. Uh, ruminations tend to be uh, have a lot of maybe regret or guilt baked into them. Um, what, one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in, in them is because, and I'm not sure how many people know this, but when you bring back a memory, something that happened to you in the past, you make another memory in your brain. Now, you know, why is that? Well, the reason is because you bring this memory 
it's in your brain, obviously, but it feels like it's coming, you know, from the past. You bring it into your conscious awareness. And now that information becomes attached to the present moment. So, for example, if I bring back a memory of my uncle, who I really liked, and I'm talking to him about him to you now, I've made another memory of my uncle in this moment. Now that's a benign example, right? But you can imagine that if every time you think about something negative, you're bringing back this memory and making yet more. Right, so it's a sort of a memory palace and and that's what the memory is. Where uh, It's infinite, it's being built on. Uh, so every time we have a thought, we add a door, we add a, we add a room. I'm talking with Tracy Shaw. Not Tracy Shaw, Tracy Shaw's everyday, author of Everyday Trauma. Remapping the brain's response to stress, anxiety, and painful memories for a better life. Um, so this isn't really a dark book. This is a dark. This is a book about fixing what she calls everyday trauma. Um, and after the break, uh, Tracy, I want to come back and talk about this remapping uh, that you're in the business of. That the book suggests that offers people the ability to remap their brain's response to stress, anxiety, and painful memories, which will hopefully in turn result in a better life. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back with Tracy Shaw's author of Everyday Trauma, to talk about how we can all remap our brains uh, for a better life. So hold on a few seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keen on show i certainly hope you're enjoying it but i wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen on show the first of course is by in a very traditional way subscribing to the audio only podcast you can do this um, using apple or spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're with Tracy Shores, the author of Everyday Trauma. We spent the first part of the sh this show talking about how trauma seems to be ubiquitous. It's perhaps the word, for better or worse, of 2021. We need to get beyond it. Maybe 2022 can be 
a post-trauma year. And if we read Tracy's book and listen to her wisdom, perhaps we can learn how to remap the brain's response. Tracy is a neuroscientist, distinguished neuroscientist, teaching at Rutgers University in New Jersey. So Tracy, how do we remap the brain's response? It, it sounds very easy, but of course, I'm sure it's, it's terribly complicated. Yeah, it's not easy. <clears throat> um, it's going to take some effort. So that was one of the things that uh, I wanted to get across in this book is that, you know, we, we can change our brain, but it's not an easy endeavor. And, and, it, and, it, and it shouldn't be really, you know, most things in life that are good for us, that help us, that are beneficial for ourselves and for others require some degree of, of effort. Um, they've been referred to by others as desirable difficulties. You know, I call them uh, effortful learning experiences, but there are ways documented ways, scientifically proven ways to change the anatomy, the neurophysiology of our brain for the better. And, and most of them require some learning. You so know, here like we have uh, an image uh, of the hippocampus. Um, you talk about this in your book and um, in your website. The idea that um, we can remap that. How, how do we do it? You say it's hard. Is it through what you call ruminations or do we need to get beyond ruminating? Um, I think actually the ruminations keep us from uh, helping ourselves because ruminations are keep us kind of in the past, not paying attention to what's happening now. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I try to present in the book is the many pathways that we can get to um, a better life through changing our brain. Now, I have a, a program that I developed. It's called MAP Training. MAP stands for Mental and Physical. And I developed it um, based on the research I was doing on the hippocampus, showing that mental training, particularly if it's effortful, is uh, really useful for changing the structure, enhancing kind of the, the structure of the hippocampus. Um, likewise, physical training, in particular aerobic exercises, is also super good because when you exercise aerobically, which requires effort, it's not taking a walk down the street, but you know, getting your heart rate up um, over a, a 100 beats per minute or so, um, brings lots of oxygen to your brain, which then helps you, um, helps the brain consolidate this information and causes new, all kinds of new structures to be. Uh, I mean, uh, we, we always hear, Tracy, and we've had it on this show a lot, the value of exercise. Are you suggesting that if we exercise in a coherent way, if we copy your map training um, uh, exercise, we can re-architect our brains, we can reprogram, remap our brains? Yeah, I mean, not completely, but, you know, we've done a number of studies. In fact, we did the first half of this program, the first half hour is mental training with meditation, which is, is different, right? Because now you're actually concentrating on your own 
thoughts on your own minds, hopefully learning a little bit about your own mental processing and how they change and come and go and how kind of elusive they are. <clears throat> so the mental training through meditation is then followed immediately by the aerobic exercise. So you meditate and then you work out. I mean, yeah, that that's it. I mean, it sounds simple, but it requires some effort. You know, you just have to put in some effort. It sounds like the kind of thing they do all day in Los Angeles anyway. Well, people talk a lot more about it probably than they do it. That's, you know, been my experience. But we've, we've given this um, program, provided this program to many populations um, who've had a lot of trauma. And in fact, one of our studies, we, uh, we separated out like this, this was a study I did with trauma, sexual violence, trauma in women. <clears throat> and one group of women only exercised twice a week aerobically. One group only meditated twice a week. And then one group did both and the, together. And the people who did both together actually, you know, were better off in terms of how much they ruminated later, they ruminated less, um, how many trauma thoughts they had, how much self-esteem they had. So doing so both. I understand, Tracy, I understand what exercise is, but I'm not so sure about meditation. Perhaps you can explain it. I, of course, you can go online and, and go to Wikipedia. You can read about meditation as a practice where an individual uses a technique such as mindfulness or focusing the mind on a particular object to train attention and awareness. But it can easily be parodied too. What do you mean by meditation? And, and, and why does it attract a distinguished neuroscientist like yourself. It sounds a bit soft for someone like you. Yeah, you know, it does actually. And I thought it was. Uh, when I was first thinking about developing this program, I looked at a bunch of brain training kind of programs and they just didn't seem very interesting or effective particularly. And someone suggested meditation. And I, I'd always thought of it too as something kind of soft and maybe just not my... Yeah, I'm watching uh, the. I don't know if you've, you're watching the uh, Peter Jackson's wonderful documentary on the Beatles, the Let It Be um, documentary from 1969. And George Harrison is the quintessential meditator in the film, and he's easy to parody. You know, he of course went to India to meditate. Um, but you're suggesting it's more serious than just people like George Harrison looking for gurus in India. Yes. I mean, it's hard to meditate. I mean, maybe I was fortunate because when I first learned, I learned a very kind of serious type, you know, similar to Zen meditation, where you sit in absolute silence by yourself and count your breath. Yeah, you have a piece about being taught uh, by uh, Zen monks, mm -hmm. um, whose sort of whose existence I think is built around the the act, the art of meditation. Yeah. And you know, one reason I think it's so powerful, and I, I was surprised at how powerful it is, is that I think it really helps people get some distance from their own thoughts. You know, when, when I was talking earlier about ruminations, you say, well, you know, what's so bad about ruminations? Well, it's good to know that they're just thoughts. And in one way to get some distance 
from your own thoughts is to look at them kind of from the outside. So we're escaping ourselves. You're suggesting that as a neuroscientist, that it might be healthy to almost escape from our own brains. Well, I would say embrace the brain, you know, like not like realize that our thoughts are actually created by tissue, fat, proteins, neurophysiology in our head. You know, because most of us think our, our thoughts are somehow like almost supernatural, like they come from who knows where, but, but they come from your brain. <laughs> and so the more you can accept that fact, then the more you can kind of get some distance from them. That's my so it, so it allows you to be critical about your own thoughts and, and meditation enables that. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, realistic, you know, realistic about your own thoughts, that they're, well, that they're real, that, they, that they're made by physiology. So Tracy, let's end with, you've got three steps um, on this uh, remapping the brain in response to everyday trauma. Perhaps talk about the three steps. The first is, and some people will be interested in doing this because there'll be people listening to this, watching this, who themselves are victims of trauma. The, the step one is is 20 minutes of sitting meditation. What do you have to do to do this? You can't just sit down, right? You just have to sit down and you don't even have to sit on the floor if you can't. You could sit in a chair, it doesn't really matter. The point, again, the point is really what you're doing inside your own brain. And again, this is meant to be somewhat difficult. So it should be done in complete silence. You should be awake. It's not a relaxation kind of meditation. It's um, sitting, counting, starting with one, the space between the out breath and the in breath. And then you just count. And I, you know, I usually tell people, try to count to a thousand. And people are like, what? <laughs> because, you know, most people get to about 10 if they're lucky. And then they're thinking about what they'll have for dinner or what so-and-so said to them yesterday that made them really upset. So the point is to learn to pay attention, for, you forget to pay attention, and then you remember, oh, I forgot to pay attention. So I think of it as a really, like a learning process. Learn. And then let's talk briefly about the second step. Uh, yeah, so then the pun of a second step being 10 minutes of slow walking. Walking is also supposed to be a form of therapy, I guess. It always seemed to be one. Yeah, the, the walking meditation was also something that I incorporated in part because, again, I didn't want this to be like a big onerous pro uh, program where people felt like they really had to spend a lot of time and um, or money or anything else to do it. And so we do 20 minutes of sitting and then 10 minutes of slow walking, which is you know, similar, you just keep your feet, your uh, attention focused in on your feet. So no, uh, no social media here, uh, Tracy, I'm assuming no Facebook browsing, no, no, <laughs> no TikTok, no, um, no YouTube. And then the third step is 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. You're clearly a, an aerobic exerciser yourself in great shape. What does that involve going to the gym? Well, People can do it any way they want. There's many roads to uh, 
to this program, I guess you could say. So you could run on a treadmill, elliptical machine, you could spin, you could swim. You know, I prefer kind of aerobic dance exercise, and that's what my online program involves to music. But the point is to get your heart rate up for at least about 20 of, of the 30 minutes. So you warm up, get your heart rate up, and then pretty much go for it. You know, for a little- We gotta go for it. You've gone for it in this book, Tracy. Um, Everyday Trauma, Remapping the Brain's Response to tre- Stress, Anxiety, and Painful Memories for a Better Life. You also, um, you offer this as a six-week online course. Some people might be listening or watching and thinking, um, is this woman simply selling herself and her program? How do you separate your online program from your book, Everyday Trauma? Are you trying to get clients for this program or the two things in uh, parallel but not really connected? They're kind of in parallel, but they're not connected. And I just wanted to, you know, the online program I developed actually during the pandemic, in part because I wanted a way for people could so people could do this at home. Well, they um, can. There'll be people. So what What will they get for their uh, $99 one-time fee if people fancy this, if they believe in it, starting February 1, 2022? Um, what will they get? How will that help them with their everyday trauma? Well, it'll be a, it's a one-hour a class per week. So you sign up. I'm going to teach it. So you do it with me. I'll lead through the meditations through the exercise program. I also uh, talk a little bit about the brain every week. I, I deliver what's called a brain bit, you know, just to just to provide a little context about the brain before we begin and when we end. And um, there's a video, so people who can't do it in person uh, can also watch a video if they want to and do it along with the video. Tracy, next time we do a show together, you'll have to get you'll have to dress up in your aerobic outfit and we can do some meditation we can do it in practice um well it's it's really nice to talk to you tracy it's it's always nice to have a distinguished neuroscientist who's really trying to help people figure out everyday solutions i think to this terrible trauma that seems to be affecting so many people today in the year of covid hopefully 2022 will be a better year for all of us um in addition as i said tracy has a new book out everyday trauma it's just out remapping the brain's response to stress anxiety and painful memories for a better life what else uh tracy uh should we be re- uh, reading um in late 2021 or perhaps early 2022 i know you're talking to me from uh, rutgers university in new jersey where i assume there's not much else to do except read <laughs> No, we have a few other things happening here. Um, Well, I was thinking uh, about E.O. Wilson, actually, the last Mm -hmm. few days. Good, good, good. And, you know, he was such an important person. Um, The book that really influenced me when I was young was Sociobiology, which was fairly prescient, you know, um, at the time controversial. Uh, Right. Yeah. Do ants have anxiety, Tracy? Did uh, did uh, E.O. Wilson find that anxiety spread to the ants? Mm, I don't know about that. I'm sorry, like anxiety? I mean the collective 
anxiety. Yeah, I mean, given that he was an authority on ants, wasn't he? Yeah, really? uh, I don't know about that, actually. I can't really speak. But which to that. book in particular of Wilson would you suggest people read? Well, the book I was actually thinking that's a little newer is The Meaning of Human Existence. Wow. Well, small subject. Yeah. Uh, if anyone can exactly. take that one on, it's E.O. Wilson. Tracy Shores, uh, everyday author of Everyday Trauma, taking on a very important issue too, remapping the brain's response to stress, anxiety, and painful memories for a better life. I wish you, Tracy, a very happy, healthy new year. I think your life is already pretty good, but it's always nice to have a better life. So keep well, Tracy, and we'll talk again perhaps next year about confronting and overcoming trauma. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe you could come to my class. That would be great. I'd love to. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.